As I was thinking about this, I thought that, you know, life is full of important questions, essential questions that need to be answered. You know, at some point we ask the question, well, who will I marry? What will I do for a living? Where will I go to college? Should I even go to college? Where will I live? Which house shall we live in? What kind of house should we live in? Can we even afford a house to, to live in? But questions like these are important. But what do you think, think about this for a minute, what do you think is the most important question of all? The most important question of all. Think about it for a moment. What is life's most important question? The most important question that you'll ever need to answer is, do I belong to Jesus Christ? Do I belong to Jesus Christ? Because if you belong to Christ, then according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God are yes in Him. All of the promises. If you belong to Christ, you are reconciled to God. Your sins are forgiven. You can enjoy fellowship with Him every day. And you know that if you were to die today, you would go to be with the Lord in, in glory. If you belong to Christ. But if you get the wrong answer when you ask, do I belong to Christ? and you give the wrong answer, then you won't get the right answer on any other decision that you'll ever make. So, do you belong to Christ? And if you do, how do you know you do? One of Paul's main reasons for writing Romans chapter 8, this 8th chapter, was to give assurance to those who believe in Jesus Christ, to us who believe in Jesus, assurance that we belong to him for time and for eternity. So please turn once again or look once again at the ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Because in verse 9, Paul gives us the distinguishable mark of a Christian. How do you know you belong to Christ? What do you look for? What is that distinguishing mark? How can you tell? How do you know? And in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8, speaking of believers or two believers in Christ, Paul writes... However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And the idea here is what Paul has been making this point through chapter 6, 7, and now 8, is that unbelievers are in the sway or under the influence of the flesh. They're swayed by their fleshly nature. They make decisions depending on what the flesh desires. They live their lives under the sway and under the influence of the flesh, while believers in Christ are under the sway or controlled by the Holy Spirit. They walk according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. And as we've seen several times in the book of Romans, Paul divides all people into just two categories. There's just two, only two. There are those who are in the flesh, and then there are those who are in the spirit. And there's no other category. There's no in-between. And then Paul tells us it's a matter of life and death, of spiritual life or spiritual death, to have the Spirit of God dwelling in us or not having the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So Paul adds in the middle of the verse, middle of verse 9, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Holy Spirit does not dwell in a person, if the Holy Spirit does not live on the inside of him or her, that person is not even a Christian if they don't have the Holy Spirit. 
C.H. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in the, the 18th or 19th century, said of this verse, this is one of the most solemn texts in the whole Bible. He says, it is so sweeping, it deals with us all, and it deals with the most important point about us, for to belong to Christ is the most essential thing for time and eternity. Thus, it's absolutely vital to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you because if you don't, you don't belong to Christ. And Paul states it negatively at the end of of verse 9. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But I want us to think about the opposite here. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's from the negative. What is the positive? If you have the Spirit of God, you belong to Christ. If you have the Spirit of God, you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Do you know he bought you with his blood? You are not your own. He bought you with a price. You are his slave, as Paul said earlier in Romans. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where Paul combines the idea of the indwelling Spirit of God to belonging to Christ. I'll just read it. Or do you not know that your body is the temple? of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, you don't belong to you, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Pastor Stephen Cole said of this, I can't help but think that the church would be very different if everyone would live daily in the reality of this truth. I am not my own, I belong to Christ. My tongue is not my own to use to yell at my family when I'm upset. I must use it to glorify Christ. My eyes are not my own to look lustfully at women. I must use my eyes to glorify Christ. My money is not my own to use as I please. I must use it to glorify Christ. My time is not my own to squander on frivolous pursuits. I need to use it to serve and glorify Christ. It's a life-transforming principle, he says, The mark of being a Christian is the Spirit dwells in you, and now you belong to Christ. In verses 9 through 11 here in Romans chapter 8, we get a chance to look at the spiritually minded. Those who are spiritually minded, those whom Paul says in verse 6, they know life. They know no peace, spiritual life and peace. And in the earlier portion of chapter 8, In verses 4 through 11, the focus was on those who were fleshly. Their mind was set on the flesh. Their their preoccupation, their aspirations had to do with the flesh. And now we come to verses 9 and 10, and we get to look at the spiritually minded person. Notice how verse 9 starts out. He says, however, you, you, second second person, so far in chapter 8, Paul's been talking about they and them and those. The they rather than than the you. Who are the they? If you looked at verse 5, you would see that the they, the those, are those who walk according to the flesh. Those are the those. Now he says you, but you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Amen? You are in the, the spirit. This signifies the state of grace, a state of salvation, that new creation that we now have in the Spirit. You literally move and live in Him. Your life is in 
his life. Your life, his life is in your life. We, we sing that song, my life is in you, Lord. My strength is in you, Lord. My hope is in you, Lord. He says, this is true, he says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now that phrase, if indeed, could and should be very well translated since. Since. Don't take that if as a condition like there's, there's some way out of this. Because there's not in the, the Greek, the original structure of the language. So it would read like this. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit since. Since indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now what happens when you became a believer? What happens when somebody becomes a believer in Jesus Christ? At the time of your salvation, the Holy Spirit immediately takes up residence in you. And that signifies a dramatic change at that very moment. He's not talking about some profession, like you're in the Spirit because you said you were. You're in the Spirit because you wanted to be. You're in the Spirit because you prayed to be in the Spirit. No, you're in the Spirit because the Spirit is in you. And He becomes pervasive in your life. That word that's translated dwells, the, the Spirit of God dwells in you, is okeo. You know, maybe you've heard that because there's, a, there's a, a, a yogurt that's called oikos. Have you heard that? That's a Greek word. It comes from the same word, okeo, which means to live in as in a home. And I don't know what they mean by okos. It can mean house or it can be at home. Or I'm kind of thinking that in the Greek they're kind of saying this is like homemade. This is as good as homemade homemade yogurt. But oikoio means to, it's a permanent residence. It's where you live permanently. The Holy Spirit's permanent residence, his home, is in the believer. When the Holy Spirit is at home, where is he? He's in us. He's at home. He takes up residence in the believers. Now, some through the years had the idea that you got saved and then you got the Holy Spirit later. And quite frankly, there's people all over this land today that are praying for the Holy Spirit to come in the sense to be in, in them. And that's not true at all. It's not true at all. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you didn't have the transformation that his coming brought, and you weren't converted at all. You weren't regenerated. You weren't born again if the Holy Spirit didn't come and do his work. And the great fact is that not only were you justified by the declaration of God, when you received Jesus Christ, he declared you righteous, but you were also transformed. You were also changed. You were given a new nature, remember that, in which the Holy Spirit has taken up his resonance. And so not only has the Holy Spirit broken the power of sin and the punishment of sin, in the sense that he has somehow taken you out of sin's power and its ability to impose upon you a death penalty, but the Holy Spirit has given you the strength by his very presence to live a godly life, to live a holy life. Turn over to Paul's letter for the, to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Beginning at the 13th verse of Ephesians chapter 1, it's page 1429. Because this passage in Ephesians solidifies the truth and gives us assurance. It gives us the assurance that as believers, we indeed are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it gives us the assurance that we belong to Him for time and for eternity. 
And speaking of the Holy Spirit, he refers to God's seal. God's seal, S-E-A-L. Not the kind of go, no, just the, the seal, like you seal something. God's pledge. And Paul writes in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 1, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, first of all, we need to ask, answer the question that we see here in Ephesians. When were the believers in Ephesus sealed with the Holy Spirit? Did you catch it in that verse? When were they sealed? It says, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of their salvation. Okay, they heard the gospel. They heard the message. They were sealed after that. They had to hear the message first. So they heard the gospel proclaimed, then it says, having also believed. Having heard the gospel and having believed, having come to faith, they were converted at that moment, they were born again at that very moment, they were regenerated at that very moment, they received a new nature in Jesus Christ at that very moment, and it says at that very moment they were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit came to live in them, to make his home in them, to empower them, to make them holy at the very moment they came to faith in Jesus Christ. There was no waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, no praying for him to come, no great emotional experience other than what conversion brings when we receive Christ. At the moment they came to faith, they were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So what is God's seal? What does it mean? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does it mean to be sealed? Now, it doesn't mean you were sealed like the good housekeeping seal, like God just, oh, I approve of that person. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can back that one up. Nor does it mean you take that long strip of packing tape and you seal the package before you mail it. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean the Tupperware seal that somehow we're going to keep fresh because we are, are sealed in there. That isn't the idea. It's a seal of authority. And we'll talk about more of that about in a minute. But uh, in those days, in Bible days, any official document, they would take and they would pour wax on the thing. And the king would do that or, or whatever it is. And the king would take his signet ring and then he would press it into the wax. He would seal it, and then it would be unbroken. And if it was a letter or a document, you know, most times they rolled up the scroll, and then as the scroll laid over, they would pour the wax on the edge of the paper, the document, and they would seal it. And if that, that wax was ever broken, they knew that the seal had been broken, but uh, they also were in violation of that seal. Now he says here, what, what the, the Spirit is God's seal, God's seal. So what does that mean? So I, I want to show you four things, illustrate four things from God's Word that the seal of the Holy Spirit means. Number one, the seal was used by princes and kings and nobles in the time of the Bible as a sign of security 
as a sign of security. And I want to show you an illustration of this. I'm going to show you several illustrations of these, but I want you to turn to this one. To, back to Daniel chapter 6, verse 16. Been a while since we've been to Daniel. We were in Sunday school class with Daniel for about a year, I think. What a great study. Uh, Daniel, I believe, is right after the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is a pretty good-sized book. So if you can find Ezekiel in the Old Testament, you can find Daniel. And I didn't write the page number on this one. So you're, you're on your own if you're using the Bible in the rack. Daniel chapter 6, and we'll be looking at, at verse 16. You remember that Daniel was told not to pray to God or he'd get in trouble. Daniel said, you know, they, they, the, the king put an edict out because he was uh, uh, deceived by his, some of the other rulers and nobles and those things. And Daniel was told not to pray to God or he'd get in a lot of trouble. So he went and prayed to God anyway. So he goes up into his upper room, he throws open the window facing west towards Jerusalem where everybody can see him, and he prays anyway. And what they do? They throw him in the lion's den. Now listen to verse 16 as we read this. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Now, the king didn't put him in there because he wanted to, but he got conned into it by the little political games that were going on. But anyway, he threw Daniel into the lion's den and basically says, wow, I hope your God gets you out of this. He better get you out of this because nobody else can. And then Darius actually says, I'm believing that, that he will get you out of this. Now, look at verse 17. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. The purpose of the sealing was that nothing would be changed concerning Daniel. His situation wouldn't change. Nothing would change. In other words, when you walked up to that stone and you saw the king's seal, or the wax or whatever he used on that stone to seal it, nobody but nobody would open that den. Why? Because the king, the highest authority in the land, had sealed it. And then just to add to it, the nobles of the land, which are probably the ones that conspired against Daniel, they sealed it. And they thought, this is it, Daniel's had, the lions are going to have their lunch and when we open it up tomorrow, nothing's going to be changed because we put our seal on it. The signet and the seal was the mark of the king. Now we need to understand this. Only someone higher than the king could break that seal. That was the sign of security. It was locked by the king. Don't open it. And of course we know what? A higher authority broke the broke the seal or protected no actually protected Daniel in, in the lion's den and when they opened up the morning uh, he was fine let me give you another illustration when they buried Jesus in the tomb they rolled this tomb the stone across and, and what did they do they sealed it with the seal of Rome which was to say no power can dare open the seal unless it's a greater power than Rome you know what happened? A greater power than Rome broke the seal. 
but the seal was the sign of authority. And this is what we need to get out of this. When you became a Christian, God put his Holy Spirit in you. He stamped his signet, which is the Holy Spirit, and said, this is secure. You are secure. No one can ever touch this life that is in Christ unless he be a higher authority than Almighty God. And there is none higher authority than Almighty God. So it's the sign of security. Now, people like to ask, do you believe we're secure in Christ? Do you believe we're secure in Christ? And yes, of course. That's what it's saying. It's the security of the believer. The Holy Spirit is that seal. So it talks about security. The second use of the word seal in the Bible is as a sign of authenticity. That it's authentic, authenticity. We don't need to turn this one, but back in 1 Kings chapter 21, you remember there's a lady by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel was a very bad lady, bad lady. People don't name their children Jezebel. You ever notice that? What do they name Jezebel? They're donkeys. <laughs> Never run across anybody named Jezebel unless the person was a donkey. She was, she was evil, and Jezebel had a real dodo for a husband by the name of Ahab. King Ahab. And Ahab was a kind of mealy mouse character. And when he wanted to get anything done, he got Jezebel to do it. And Ahab was really coveting a beautiful vineyard owned by a guy named Naboth. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And so Ahab asked Jezebel, sweetheart, would you get Naboth's vineyard for me? And she says, sure, honey, I'll get that for you. So Jezebel sets out to get the vineyard. And so she wrote an official letter on behalf of the king. And it said, this official letter said, this vineyard now belongs to the king. Period. Paragraph. Sealed. Signed. Sealed. Delivered. Remember the song, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours? This was signed, sealed, delivered. It's mine. It's Ahab's and mine. And that was it. And once she signed the letter and she stamped it with the king's seal, the letter was a mark of authenticity. This was a legitimate letter from the king. The seal was the royal signature. And what she was really saying is that the letter is authentic. Now, that's a crummy story, but there's a beautiful truth in this about what the seal means. When God gives us his Holy Spirit, it's as if he says... Don't mess with this person because this is an authentic child of the living God. Isn't that great? The only authentic Christian is the one who possesses the Holy Spirit, who's sealed with the mark of authenticity. So the seal speaks of security, never to be broken. It speaks of authenticity. This is a genuine child of God. And thirdly, in the Bible, the seal is used as a sign of completed transaction. Completed transaction. There's a, that account in the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. You don't need to turn to this one either. Just listen to, to this account. Jeremiah, you know, we, we look at his life and we go, what a heartbreaking guy. His story is a heartbreak. The Lord said to Jeremiah in the first chapter, Jeremiah, you're going to be my man, Jeremiah. You're going to be my spokesman. He was just a young man, a teenager, some of the ages of some of you guys sitting here 
here this morning. And Jeremiah, you're going to go out and preach your entire life. And you're going to pour out your heart. And you're going to announce the things that I want you to say. And by the way, Jeremiah, nobody, no time is ever going to listen to anything that you say. But go to it, brother. Yeah, Jeremiah said, man, you got to be kidding. But dear old Jeremiah went out there. He wept at times. He cried. He laid around the city in funny positions. He stood up and he preached and he did all this weird stuff. He was quite a guy. He was a faithful guy. And he set out to buy a field, to buy a piece of property. God told him to go buy a piece of property. And God basically says, now, Jeremiah, you're going to buy this piece of property But don't worry about the fact that Jerusalem is going to be rubble pretty soon. The whole thing is going to be blown up, as it were. Jerusalem is going to be wiped out. You buy that piece of property because when everybody comes back from captivity, see, all your descendants will inherit this lovely piece of property. And so Jeremiah goes and he buys it. And you know what he, when he got it all done, you know what he did? The Bible says he sealed the transaction. He sealed it. You know what the seal means? It's a sign of a finished transaction. Isn't that great? It's a finished transaction. And so this is another thing we don't want to miss. We are not in the process of getting saved. We are in the process of growing in Christ's likeness, right? But we're not in the process of getting saved. We are sealed with the sign of a finished transaction. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God gave you the Holy Spirit and said, this is a finished transaction. So it's a mark of security, it's a mark of authenticity, and it's a mark of finished transaction. And lastly, concerning the seal, it's a mark of authority. It's a mark of authority. And you find this in the book of Esther, and I'll just tell you the account again. If you were to read the 8th chapter of Esther, you find that beautiful little story there that Esther wanted the king to settle a certain issue. Uh, That certain issue was all the Jews were going to be wiped out if the king didn't do something something about it. And, And so she said to the king, okay, king, you make the edict and you sign it and you seal it and we'll carry it out. And so after the signing and the sealing, they're walking around all the towns and communities with this letter from the king that's a sign of authority. And they were carrying the letter from the king around, and they were telling people, you have to listen to the king. you got to listen to what the king says here, and what that specific thing was, that, that the king gave the Jews the ability to protect themselves from getting totally wiped out. <laughs> And so when they took up arms and protected themselves, then their enemies didn't attack them. But they were telling people, you've got to listen to the king here. This is what the king's letter says you are supposed to do. And we have an example of this this morning. When When I come to you on Sunday morning and say, I have a letter from the king of kings. And out of that letter, we're going to read from the book of Romans this morning, and we're going to study that. This is what I want you to do. This is the way I want you to live. This is the way that you are to behave. This isn't whimsical Bill Slaybaugh just coming up with something and telling you some great ideas. I'm not standing up here thinking up things to say. I've often said if it wasn't for the Bible, I have nothing to say on Sunday, Sunday morning because the authority is here. This is the authoritative book, right? 
And I'm speaking to you from God's authority, I trust. And we can even take it a step farther as it applies to all of us. And there's a sense in this which, when God gave you his Holy Spirit, he said of you, look, you see this guy? You see this lady? They speak with my authority because they have my seal. Isn't that great? So the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of promise, guarantees the inheritance. It secures us. It authenticates us as genuine. It, it delegates to us divine authority, and it symbolizes a finished transaction. When God gave you the Holy Spirit, he gave you the guarantee. And all the guarantee you're ever going to need. That every promise in him is yes. Amen. As I was studying this this week, I kept thinking, going back to that imperial song that they sang a long time ago now, but uh, the song goes this way. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim, to let us drown. He didn't move his home in us to move away. He didn't lift us up to let us down. There are some promises in a letter written a long, long time ago they're not getting older, they're getting better because he still wants us to know. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim to let us drown. He didn't build his home in us to move away. He didn't lift us up to let us down. So I just want to add one more thought from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, as we go back to the book of Ephesians. 14th, or the first chapter of Ephesians again, the 14th verse he says the holy spirit of promise who is given as a pledge we've had the seal now we have the pledge the pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of god's own possession to the praise of his glory the holy spirit is given as a pledge my one of your translations might say he's he's given as as earnest until the time of total purchase possession. And what is earnest? What is a pledge? This is really great. The Greek word is erebon, erebon. And it means two things. First of all, it means down payment or the idea of earnest money. And so, you know, this last week, as Jan and I made an offer on the house, we said we're going to put so much earnest money upon that. And these days, it's about 1% of the, the transaction thereabout. The earnest is a good faith offer that we're going to keep our a part of the agreement. We're not going to back out of the agreement or we will what? We will forfeit our payment. So here's the deal. When it comes to the Holy Spirit himself being the earnest, when would God forfeit or back out of his pledge? Never, never, ever, not even possible because he would have to forfeit himself, because he himself, the Holy Spirit, is the pledge. This is one of the strongest statements in what we call the security of the believer in all of Scripture. Or if you want a more understandable term, you often hear it, once saved, always saved. Because for God to back out of our salvation, he would have to renege on himself, he would have to forfeit himself, and God will never, ever do that, nor can he ever do that. God says to us as believers who have been given his Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you all my promises, 
And I give you the Holy Spirit to show you. I'm not misleading you. I'm not going to con you. Here's the down payment. The Holy Spirit himself. He's already given down payment. He's in too deep to renege on the rest. It's a big down payment. You know what the second thing that that Greek word Erebon means? First of all, it means like a pledge as in earnest money. The second way it's used in the Greek is an engagement ring. An engagement ring. People say, well, you know, all these Christians, they're just talking about heaven all the time. They're going to go be with Jesus and, and all this kind of stuff. They see it as pie in the sky kind of stuff. And when we all get to heaven, what a, what a glorious thing that will be. And, you know, the Bible does talk about that. And one of the ways it talks about it says there's going to be a marriage supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. How do we know that this wedding is going to come off? Do you know what you can say? Because God has given me an engagement ring. Now listen, girls, when a guy comes up to you and says, boy, I really like you a lot. I really love you. I'd like to marry you. Let's talk about that some more. You, know, you can take it with a grain of salt, right, ladies? But if he comes up to you and says, I'd like to marry you, I love you, and he hands you a $6,000 diamond ring. I looked it up. That's the average cost of an engagement ring today, $6,000. And all you're going, my husband didn't give me that. <laughs> that was a long time ago. When he gives you that $6,000 or $2,000 engagement ring, you can believe it. You can take it to the jeweler and make sure it's a diamond, and you can believe it. There's commitment there. There's an investment there. And that's exactly what God is saying here. Hey, I've got a promise for you. I have an inheritance for you. I've got something laid up for you that's so incredible. And just so you know that I'm not kidding about this, here's my down payment. Here's my engagement ring. Here's my Holy Spirit of promise. And even more as we look at or just read one more verse in, in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit of God lives within us to constantly confirm to us that we are children of God, that we've been adopted into his family, and we are in the process of seeing the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And we just read this in conclusion. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. And again, that if children, that should be translated since. Since we are children of God, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, since indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth that you have shown us from your word this morning and what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise who has given us a pledge to us, Lord. We all know and we realize without the Holy Spirit living in us, we would have, would have nothing. But with the Holy Spirit living in us, we have everything, everything you have ever promised to those who love God, love you, 
and belong to you. Father, I pray as we continue to study this eighth chapter of Romans that you would continue to take us step by step in our walk with you. But Father, I pray this morning that uh, through your Holy Spirit, you would give us the assurance of who we are in Christ, that we are secure not because of what we do, because of what Jesus did on the cross, and that you sealed it with your Holy Spirit. Done deal. End of story. Father, show us how now we can walk in the Spirit as we live out our daily lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.